Sadie, do you know what time it is? Um, like 1 p.m.-ish, I think. Sure, if you want to be Amelia Bedelia about it. What's more important is that it is summertime. <laughs> that means no school bells, no rambunctious needy students, no teaching responsibilities at all. Just beautiful, desperately needed rest and recuperation. <laughs> You'd think I'd notice that working at a university. But we have such a busy summer at MC that it just hasn't hit me. Couldn't be me. I'm getting ready to read all the books and watch all the movies I didn't have time to over the year. Oh, man. Actually, speaking of summer media, you've accidentally perfectly set me up to explain the next six episodes of Carrie the Two. How so? Well, I thought to celebrate summer, we could do a series to celebrate blockbuster movies. So starting today, we'll be taking a look at the mathematics and statistics behind Hollywood. Does that mean we'll be talking about the math needed for special effects, or like how Hollywood tells stories that integrate math? How about both? The National Academy of Sciences recognized that we have an opportunity to raise the level of science discourse in the country. So they created an organization in Los Angeles, and they're called the Science Entertainment Exchange. But before we get to who this is, shall we introduce ourselves? I'm Ian Martin. And I'm Sadie Witkowski. And you're listening to Carry the Two, a podcast from the Institute for Mathematical and Statistical Innovation, aka MC. This is the podcast where Ian and I talk about the real-world applications of mathematical and statistical research. Or, in this case, the fictional worlds created by Hollywood. Right. We might seem like an odd couple to tackle these topics, as a cognitive neuroscientist and high school choir teacher, respectively. But it turns out you don't need a math degree to see how mathematics plays a key role in all sorts of unexpected places. Like on a Hollywood set. (laughs) Or even behind the scenes sometimes, as today's guest explains. Hi, my name is Kevin Grazier, and by education, I'm a planetary dynamicist. That means my research involves large-scale models of uh, the solar system, physics, and, and all the gravitational interactions. So earlier, Kevin was saying something about a science entertainment exchange? Right. It's a program born out of the National Academy of Sciences that works to connect Hollywood folks, whether they be student filmmakers or big-name producers, with scientists with specific expertise. So, like, if you want your movie about a submarine to be scientifically accurate with the amount of pressure it can handle or something... You call the Science Entertainment Exchange, and they connect you with the right kind of scientist to advise you. That's pretty neat. I have been a science advisor on several television series and feature films. Uh, Most notable as far as television was Battlestar Galactica. I was the science advisor for every episode but the pilot. And also the film Gravity. But those are old news, at least compared to today's topic. What happened is the Science Entertainment Exchange came to me and said, do you know anything about space navigation? Yes, I do. (laughs) And that's how that happened. Well, don't keep me in suspense. If we're not talking about Battlestar or Gravity, what's on the menu? Well, I wanted to time this episode with the launch of season two of Foundation. Wait, is that the name of the Isaac Asimov book series? And an Apple TV series that launched last year. And even as a concept, tackling foundation and creating a coherent story without too many characters causing confusion was just the first struggle. For years, decades, 
people said this this is unshootable, unfilmable as a series, as a film, because of how wide and sprawling it is. But but in this case, Hollywood did what Hollywood is going to do. Hollywood is about your characters. Well, considering it's getting a season two, they must be doing something, right? They did seem to overcome those structural challenges. And then add on top of that, writing a series that has lots of sciencey jargon that needs to be explained. Screenwriters are told to limit the amount of science that you put in a teleplay. We're not here to give a science lesson, unless, of course, it's a documentary where you are there to give a science lesson. So your, your goal is almost always to minimize the science. This scene in Foundation breaks all that rules. Okay, so let's stop beating around the bush. Are we going to talk about the series as a whole, or do they have something particular in mind? Okay, well, let me explain the premise of the show, and then we'll get to the specific scene that we brought Kevin in for today. Go for it. So, the Foundation series is a complex story of a human-run galactic empire spread across multiple planets within the galaxy. And a scientist named Harry Seldon uses psychohistory, a fictional scientific field of study that makes predictions about the future, to see that the galactic empire is doomed to fall within a few generations. So we're talking about psychohistory in this episode? Not quite. Psychohistory as a potential future field might have made sense to Isaac Asimov back when he was writing the series in the 1940s. But modern statistics and chaos theory pretty well show that it's not possible to make predictions in the way that Harry Seldon does in the series. There's also some complexity theory going on here, too, as well, because you have to, you have to understand that, you know, certain things are, you know, you're, chaos. If you look at chaos, you know, complexity is just chaos, but I guess things that can make choices. But yeah, it's, it's about predictability. And, and, you know, this whole, this is a big chaotic system. So th that would, I think, have to play in that sort of, sort of chaos and, and complexity sort of sort of put a crimp in the whole psycho history. Okay, then... But as I was saying, the leaders of the Galactic Empire refuse to believe Dr. Selden, and he and his followers are banished to the far reaches of the galaxy. One of them, Gale, is his mathematical prodigy, and it's a scene featuring her mathematical know-how that drives the plot forward. As Kevin described it, they sent me the, this scene where they said, here's our situation. We have our main character is an, a math expert. And she, you know, she finds herself on a spacecraft. The computer has been told, you know, has been told, I can't give you a lot of information. It's a lot, a lot is restricted. I can give you only very cursory information. And so we need to establish, she needs to establish where she is and where they're going. And, you know, and remember, we're trying to also establish here that she's a math whiz. Oh, so it's kind of like an escape room with the main character trying to solve a really hard puzzle using math? Bingo. Although funny enough, what seems complicated to us non-mathematicians is often more simple than we think. First thing I told them was, as far as establishing that she's a math whiz, this is probably not the problem to do that because this is actually a problem we solve all the time on a spacecraft, and it's not that hard. I mean, for a mathematician, it's not that hard. So I think if, if we try to oversell this and make her you know, appear you know, mathematical badass, what we're gonna end up doing is making a simple problem seem difficult. So this is the fine line that Kevin had to walk. To make Gail seem clever in this scene using real math without overselling how difficult such mathematics actually are. 
Yeah, I think we're already in over my head here. High school math was a long time ago at this point. <laughs> I have to agree. This whole scene is outside my usual wheelhouse as well, but definitely not for Kevin. My my PhD was in computational orbit dynamics. You know, doing these simulations. That's basically what we're we're simulating. Is I'm simulating the the dynamical evolution of planets and and more to the point. Um, Comets, asteroids, planetesimals is sort of a generic term. Simulating orbit dynamics. Yeah. Easy peasy, I'm sure. I thought you said this was simple math. <laughs> it is. It just sounds fancy. But basically, what Kevin was doing was using math to chart out orbits of planetesimals in space. In particular, he was focused on the Cassini mission, a NASA satellite that orbited Saturn. You know, rocket science. When I was on Cassini, I was the I was half-time science planning engineer. I'll plan the sequences of events that the spacecraft goes through take, in taking science, but I was also the investigation scientist for the main camera aboard the spacecraft. Um, so both these were under the purview of, of the science planning. But given my education background, I was sort of the our interface to the nav team is our unofficial interface because I spoke navigator. Well, I'm starting to see why they contacted Kevin for help with the scene. So yes, I did have some background. I do, you know, in space navigation. I said, just let me write the darn thing. And when the physicist says, let me write part of your show, you can imagine what that response was. Yeah, uh, not so much. Yeah, I could see why Hollywood writers would be skeptical of like some egghead scientist writing the full scene, not to mention what the union would say. <laughs> right? But Kevin thought the notes and explanation for how the scene would work would honestly be longer than him just doing it himself. Because I figured that my notes for this would be longer than the dialogue. They only had like three pages to do this. Okay, enough setup. How did Kevin approach this scene on orbital dynamics? Let's set the scene, with Kevin explaining the scene he wrote in Foundation and how Gail managed to figure out where she was and where she was headed, all with math. But we'll set that up after this short break. If you're getting a lot out of the important research shared on our show, there's another University of Chicago Podcast Network show that you should check out. It's called Big Brains. Big Brains brings you the engaging stories behind the pioneering research and pivotal breakthroughs reshaping our world. Change how you see the world through research and keep up with the latest academic thinking with Big Brains, part of the award-winning University of Chicago Podcast Network. So you were just explaining to me that Kevin worked on a scene in Foundation that was about a character named Gail figuring out where she was and where she was headed, right? Right. So let's get to it. Gail has suddenly woken up, alone on an unknown ship. She wakes up um, after several years in, you know, asleep and wakes up on a spacecraft. They're in space. They're moving. And she has no idea where they're headed. She charges down to, to, to where the main computer is and with an intent to figure out where we are. Except the computer will not tell her specifics. It won't tell her where they are, where they're going. So she asks, do I have access to science data? And the computer says, well, maybe. So now she's got to try to solve this puzzle with what little scientific information the computer will give her. And step one is setting up her frame of reference. 
So the first thing she does in establishing where she is, you want to establish a coordinate system. So you want to establish something that's fixed. It's called a, an inertial frame. Whoa, 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 whoa. She's moving through space? How is she going to create a coordinate system while moving? So in astronomy, you want your stable reference point, your coordinate system, to be based on something that won't move relative to you. And in space, that's usually quasars, a bright galactic nucleus or young galaxy. One thing that establishes inertial frame are quasars. They're so far away that you could move from end to end in our galaxy and they're still at the same point in space. They're still at the same, you set up a coordinate system, you know, with the planet of our galaxy maybe being X, Y. Okay. For this fidelity we're gonna use, they're, they're perfect for what she needs. So she asks the computer, can I have, um, can you can you bring up a, a map? Uh, you know, sure. Can you show me where local quasars are? Where, where quasars that we can see? Here? And she they show up. Okay, so, so now she's established the points that that's her her framework, her her unmoving framework, her inertial frame. So we use these distant quasars to build a set of reference points, kind of like orienteering with a map when you use distant mountains to orient yourself. See, now you're talking my language. Growing up in Denver, the mountains were how I knew what direction I was heading. Okay, so we build a frame. What's next? Next, Gail asks the computer to identify some of the nearby stars that they're passing. It's given her quasars. It's given her the positions of some nearby stars. She um, she says, simple optical navigation. And that's what it is. Have I lost you yet? No, I just wasn't a space kid, so I'm having trouble wrapping my head around this. Hmm. Let's let's try a metaphor that's more down to earth then. So it's like um, imagine that you're on you're you're driving on the freeway in Wyoming, and you're you're moving along, you know, doing the speed limit about eighty because in Wyoming it's that's what it is. If you look to the side and look at the fence posts. And there's mountains in the distance, imagine. The mountains are gonna be kind of a fixture because they're really far away, but the fence posts are zooming past. They're changing their angular position relative to you. So that's essentially what she is doing. She's picking known fence posts. Um, so she asks, can I see this star? Can I see this star? Can I see this star? And the computer says, yes, you can. And it shows them the stars because this is just science. So this is nothing about the ship's mission. So the computer is okay with giving her this information. Okay, so in the metaphor, the quasars are the fixed mountains and the nearby stars are the fence posts? Right, and by figuring out how we're moving relative to those fence posts, we can figure out what direction we're going in. And assuming we're traveling in that straight line, we can then predict our destination. Cool. So we have every right to a reason to believe that she would be acquainted with stars that are in the vicinity. Okay, so she then says, okay, can I see this star, this star, and this star? But we also use the imaging system to navigate. And, and what we are going to be doing here is exactly what we, one of the ways we, we position the spacecraft, we find out where we are in space. So this is something that's established, it's called an optical navigation. It's something that we, we do all the time and it was done with my instrument. So one of the main reasons Kevin wanted to write this scene is because this kind of navigation was exactly like the work he was doing on the Cassini mission. That's the satellite that orbited Saturn. And one of the things we do is say we're flying past the moon Enceladus. 
Okay. So what we will do is we, we have a database of, of uh, I think it was 57 stars aboard the spacecraft that are bright enough for our camera to see them. So what we do is we, we would take a picture of say Enceladus, we know where its position is, you know, from we have detailed what are called ephemerides, which are basically tables of positions and velocities of all these objects for, for long periods of time. And so we know where it is, we can see how big it is in our frame. So we, we know how big it is. So we know how far away by based on how big it is in our frame. So we know our line of sight here to that. And then we know what stars we can see in the frame. Okay, I get this picture mapping idea of recognizing the frame and where you are, but how do we get direction from the fence posts, like in the previous example? Using the fixed, using the thing that moves, we know where it is, we know how far away are by its size, and then we, from based on the relative angles from the body center to all these stars, we know where we are. And that's exactly what she did. That's exactly what she was said to do. Essentially, Gail used triangulation with a bit of help from the Doppler shift. Shoot, where is that jargon? Well, wee wee chugga 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 choo choo brrrp brrrp. Jargon, Sadie. Jargon. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Here, let me just, I'll pass the explanation back to Kevin. She asks the, the computer to give her the angular separation between the, the qua one quasar she picks and these three stars that she selected. It then, she, she has it make a cone with a half width of those angles. And then she basically just, she puts the cones of, on the quasar and then the tri by triangulation, that's where you are. Okay, so she figures out where they are. Um, and it's simple geometry, fairly simple geometry. It's, some, it's something that because they showed her doing this physically manipulating cones, they're virtual cones, but she was, you know, in, in this kind of 3D, interface, yeah, interface. 3D cones, she's able to manipulate these things. And, and basically she uses a three-part triangulation to determine where, she, where they are. Ah, uh, good old triangulation. Yeah, just like when I was in orienteering with the scouts as a kid. So how does the Doppler shift come into this? Well, first, do you want to take a stab at defining what the Doppler shift is? Okay. It's when waves compress on the front end but stretch out behind whatever is moving. So like an ambulance siren sounds higher pitched as it approaches you and then shifts or switch to a lower pitch after it passes you. Exactly. And the same holds true for the waveforms of light. After that, she asks, you know, do you have spectra for these stars? Um, nominal, meaning that when we're not moving, and then when we're moving, they're going to be Doppler shifted. If you're moving towards it, they're going to be shifted towards the blue. If you're moving away, they're shifted towards the red. You know, so she gets the Doppler shift and compares that to the nominal and does some calculation. Now, here's where it's cool because they, since the character set is not um, in any set that's, it's, it's a made up character set, science fiction character set, you don't have to understand what she's doing. And we don't have to be worried about people saying you're right or wrong, but she does say, okay, I'm gonna use relativistic Doppler shift to figure out our velocity. By no, okay, firstly, knowing that the ship has, has already turned around, they're slowing down. So she's able to figure out how fast we're going. And basically she figures out approximately where they're going due to this, um, just some simple enough math, but you know, it's, it's she used what she needed to get the job done. Oh my God, that's so cool. I had no idea the Doppler effect was also true for light. I just love that this is a scene that explains a real scientific method that scientists do use. 
but in a way that feels active and engaging. Like solving a puzzle. Exactly. Every screenwriter is told, go easy on the exposition. The exposition is the science-y background. So rather than making this scene feel like a graduate course on astrophysics, Kevin wrote the scene to show science and math as a process. And I think that's why it works. Although we definitely can't give Kevin all the credit. Now, let me say two things that aided in, in that scene being as compelling as it was with all the math. In addition to it being a process that people can follow along with simply because you get the feedback from the computer and the feedback from Gail, at a point where it probably could have dragged a little bit, they made some changes, a few changes to the scene as written. And I should say that all these changes were, were um, improvements, enhancements. The director, I assume, made the decision to make some of that a montage. So it all kinds of blends together and you can still follow along. You can still see what she's doing, but you don't need to do the same thing three times to get that the triangulation that she's doing. Okay. And 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 later when she's doing the, the relativistic Doppler shift again, you know, it's, it's so they use montages effectively to speed it up. And Kevin mentioned to me that the composer for the score of foundation really helped build the sense of escalating excitement as Gail started to solve this problem. Making good television takes a village. It was an honor to, to actually get to write something and say, I, I you know, wrote those words. All right. New goal for the podcast, Sadie. How do we get to write a scene for television? <laughs> well, I don't know if that's possible. And I know the Writers Guild of America is currently on strike, so I'm not crossing that picket line. But we can certainly start by getting connected with the Science Exchange, run by the National Academies of Science. In fact, we encourage any researchers listening to consider offering up their expertise we could really add the science into science fiction. The big takeaway is that if done right, you can you can saturate the scene with science and math and people will watch. It just you have to keep in mind that you're telling a story. And as long as this stuff tells a story and you can make it even remotely accessible to the audience, they're with you. I really like how Kevin framed doing science as a narrative process, that there's actually a plot, suspense, and emotional tension, and hopefully resolution, as the science plays out. Very cool. Don't forget to check out our show notes in the podcast description for more about Stellar Cartography, Asimov's Foundation series, and Kevin's other work. And if you like the show, Give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. By rating and reviewing the show, you really help us spread the word about Carry the Two so that other listeners can discover us. And for more on the math research being shared at MC, be sure to check us out online at our homepage, mc.institute. We're also on Twitter at mc underscore institute, as well as Instagram at mc.institute. That's mc spelled I-M-S-I. And do you have a burning math question? Maybe you have an idea for a story on how mathematics and statistics connect with the world around us. Send us an email with your idea. You can send your feedback, ideas, and more to sadiewitt at mc.institute. That's S-A-D-I-E-W-I-T at mc.institute. We'd also like to thank our audio engineer, Tyler Dammy, for his production on the show. And music is from Blue Dot Sessions. Lastly, Carry the Two is made possible by the Institute for Mathematical and Statistical Innovation, located on the gorgeous campus of the University of Chicago. We're supported by the National Science Foundation 
and the University of Chicago. My god, it was bright. Oh my god, I don't even get English teacher. Switch careers. You're English now. Uh, I don't want to read all those essays. (laughs) Also, all I can think of is Titanic. Ocean Gate. Wee I don't. We can use many others. I like them all. <laughs> Does light make waves? Light is a wave. I thought it was particles. It's both. Any last words? There is similitude.